When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversant is Konstantin Kissin, who is a Russian-born British comedian or comic and co-host of Trigonometry. Trigonometry and I cover similar territory, but they have an IMDB webpage, and I do not which should tell us something about my letter and the whole celebrity stack as compared to theirs. With that taken into account, Constantine has graced my channel with his presence. And here we talk about his journey with trigonometry and being an immigrant and get into his core principles. And if you want to know somewhat of a spoiler for this entire conversation, it can be found within the title. Do check out his work with his co-host, Francis Foster, and links to trigonometry are down there in the description. Without further ado, here is Constantine Kissin. Do we need to have like a pre-talk? Do you need to be warmed up somehow? Do I need to like, I don't know no. what Bill Maher does uh, to his guests <laughs> beforehand. You guys have a little uh, spiel. It's less about warming up the, 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 the performers, if you like. It's much more about warming up the audience. So oh, okay. one thing people don't know about these comedy shows is they usually have one, two, three, four really high quality comedians who come and do warm-ups. Okay, yeah. And that's why by the time you get, like, a guest on, they've said something mildly funny and the audience is, like, pissing themselves. <laughs> oh, that's, that's why. why. I thought they yeah. just drugged the audience, but I guess they drugged them the, with laughter beforehand. On the woke shows, they probably do that as well, mate. <laughs> uh, let me just make sure I've got my phone on silent. Uh, and... Oh, good. All right. No, no, I'm good. I'm ready to go when you are. Okay, well, bird's eye view... Um, when did you guys start your trigonometry uh, thing uh, on the on the virtual uh, side of uh, the world? When did you guys uh, start doing that? How do you mean on the virtual side uh, of the world? Like podcasting and uh, doing the whole YouTube thing. And... April 2018. Oh wow, you have a very good memory for dates. Um, <laughs> April 20. Uh, it's just a it's just a very memorable event. I have a terrible memory for dates, <laughs> uh, but that is one date that has uh, changed my life in quite a dramatic okay. way. In like, a, is this like a residual trauma or like continual trauma? Do you think of it as, as traumatic? I don't think of it as traumatic at all. Uh, I, I think of it as extremely beneficial uh, and hugely helpful to not only my career, yeah. if I think about it, but actually to my development as a human being as well. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Oh, massively, massively. What, because every time you're put in a position where you're dealing with things you've never dealt before, yeah. those challenges make you better. Uh, and I've had to deal with lots of stuff and, and it keeps on going. So initially it was like, how do I deal with the fact that like quite a few people know who I am? How do I now deal with the fact that some of those people think I'm evil? Uh, How do I now deal with the fact that uh, some of those people are actually quite powerful and influential and they listen to what I say? Therefore, I'm not making throwaway comments anymore, right? Um, So that's another thing. Now, we've got a team working on on trigonometry, the show. And what that means is I have a a more, like, in addition to the performance on camera and all that sort of thing, there's a managerial element to Mm. it as well. You know, planning, strategy, you know, man management, all of that sort of thing. Oh, wow. Uh, You know, hiring decisions. This is stuff that we all have to think about. Yeah. And it's put me into all these new places where... I've, I'm like I love being bad at things, and then yeah, because that's an opportunity to to learn, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so I have that slightly psychopathic attitude to it, uh, which well, I find this really a great journey to be on. I'm really enjoying it for that reason. And you guys uh, do mostly. Uh, you guys have a live stream, which very is very frequent, and then you guys do a whole lot of interviews, right? So it's a lot of discursive in the moment. Uh, kind of uh, on-the-spot, improv kind of stuff, right? Well, it's a combination of the two. So we started by doing one interview a week, and that was really it. 
That's all we did. Uh, and then when the lockdown came, we were like, well, we need to do something. And people, are, people want content. People want to, to hear conversations. So we doubled the number of interviews. So we put out two a week. And also, we just started, you know what? We've got enough, of, enough people who want to hear from us as individuals now, not just from our guests, but from us. Why don't we just spend an hour, four nights a week, just talking about the, the stories of the day, okay. all the crazy stuff that's happening, and use... Uh, now largely redundant comedic skills because we don't get to go on stage and perform anymore yeah. as comedians. Yeah. Uh, why don't we see if we can play around with stuff and combine serious commentary with jokes and sort of, uh, you know, making fun of each other, which is a big British thing uh, that people love in, the, in this country. So, yeah, it's a combination. The streams are very much about lighthearted, looking at the stuff that's day-to-day, -day, whereas the interviews are very much big picture, what's going on in yeah, society, yeah. why in the last 15, 20 years have we seen this, what are the big trends that are affecting our daily lives. Yeah. Uh, so they're, they're very different things, interestingly enough. Are you, would you be able to give kind of a bird's eye view of uh, what you guys are mapping, uh, what this thing is that you guys are m most digging into and, and mining uh, through uh, mm. your platform and your product? Yeah, it's an interesting question and it's something we think about all the time because we're trying to understand, you know, what's our next guest going to be and why and who do we want to speak to and who do we want to learn from? Uh, I would say that initially when it started, we were just two comedians, pretty clueless about all these cultural issues, not really that clued up on the political side of things either. And what we were noticing is that in comedy, in our world, suddenly there was this influx of a large number of people who were very vocal, who had a lot of power, it seemed, with the industry, who were all the ones that were progressing up the ladder, even though they weren't necessarily the funniest people. But what they did seem to have is what you might call, quote-unquote, the right political views. Okay. Whatever... Yeah. whatever that meant, right? Yeah. And in our case, what that meant was, you can't say that, you shouldn't joke about that, uh, you can only joke about things if you're, you know, if you're not privileged, privileged, yeah. privileged, privileged, white, straight, male, you know, all of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we were like, where did this come from? Because... Uh, you know, people our age and, and older will remember the George Carlins, the Bill Hicks, the, the, the comedians that we looked up to, the Patrice O'Neills, the P Bill Burrs, whoever. These were people who challenged the orthodoxy of the day. Right. Mm -hmm. That's why Carlin and Hicks talked about religion a lot, because the censorious, you can't say that, you can't do that, people of their time was, was what in America you call the religious right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, that, was the, the, that was the group of people who were putting pressure on comedians not to do their job. And so comedians instinctively punched back at those people. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and we now found ourselves in this crazy situation where Within comedy itself, you had this large, powerful lobby of people who were basically acting as the religious right, but in the comedy world. And they were the ones who were dictating the tastes of the comedy industry. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And th that was kind of very strange to us. And we were like, why don't we start talking to people about what's going on in the world of politics, what's going on in the world of comedy, what's going on in the cultural sphere, to try and understand hmm. where that's coming from. Okay. So it was an adventure as, of understanding then? Absolutely, and that's what it continues to be. Mm -hmm. And we call the trigonometry, a lot of people think that we are like these edgelords who like to <laughs> offend people. It actually... We actually, funnily enough, the name trigonometry is almost like a trigger warning because what it's really saying from our perspective is, look, we understand that people are sensitive around lots of issues, but we want to have honest conversations with people who have controversial opinions. So you might be offended. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so when, when we set out on this journey of learning, we were aware of the fact that some of the conversations we would have would be offensive or triggering to some people. And we were upfront about it saying, look, if, you, if that's, not, not, that's not what you want to hear, if that's not the conversation you're interested in, 
maybe it's not the show for you, right? Well, and so it started like that. And then, of course, the moment you start talking to people like you and, and all sorts of other people, Andrew Doyle, the creator of Titania McGrath, other comedians, politicians, trying to understand why Brexit ha happened, trying to understand why Donald Trump got elected, trying to understand why suddenly the trans issues become such a big part of the cultural conversation. You, and, you know, we, we talk to all sorts of people. And then we started learning more. And we saw, but we basically started connecting the dots between the different things. So mm. the fact that this was happening in comedy was not disconnected from what you documented at Evergreen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was not disconnected from Brexit. It was not disconnected from Donald Trump. It was not disconnected from big tech censorship. All of these things form a part of a whole. And as you mm. unpick each layer of the onion, you start to uncover that there's a bigger thing going on. And I'm sure we'll go on to talk about what that is. Yeah, that, that whole, even summoning that whole, there's this uh, kind of like this trigger warning in my head, like how do we talk about something that vast and big without be, becoming a QAnon conspiracists mm. or, or, you mm. know, or, or uh, kind of venturing into complete speculation? Uh, do you ever f feel that way when, when you start to connect all these dots, like that one gif about the, from the guy like pulling all the strings <laughs> together and like his hair's all yeah. Well, th th I am, uh, I'm very pessimistic about humans' ability to organize things. So I'm not into conspiracy okay, theories, okay. mainly I'm, I'm, a, I'm an incompetence theorist okay, more yeah. than anything, right? I don't believe that so small groups of people can conspiratorially organize these secret things okay. that happen. Yeah. Having said that, I do believe that small numbers of people can shape the cultural landscape by a particular kind of discourse, by writing by creating certain disciplines etc mm -hmm. so you know and also the people we try to talk to they're people who are sensible who who operate on the basis of facts and logic and rational arguments so i've not been particularly troubled by that because the explanations that i am most drawn to from the people that we talk to are things that make sense as opposed to like make me feel you know really good about the idea of lizard people taking over the earth <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what i mean yeah yeah the uh, there's a word that you keep on using or dancing around, but sensitivity and sensible. And mm -hmm. uh, you brought up um, a bunch of comedians who uh, give a big middle finger uh, to uh, and, and are known to be brash and known to push push the line. If those are your mm -hmm. heroes, why are you guys being so sensible? Uh, th there seems like mm -hmm. a contradiction in that. It seems like, do you think that that's the best way to go about it? More honest, just more natural for you? Yeah, I think it's a legitimate point. I think uh, we don't do comedy on trigonometry, right? So there's elements of comedy, and that's why a lot of people enjoy that it's a serious conversation, but with levity, right? Yeah. Uh, there is that lightness to it that a lot of people appreciate. But there is a big difference between comedy and, and what we do. But also, you know, you and I would agree, I think, that what we do on trigonometry is sensible. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of people who... Uh, are on the extremes of politics, both the far right and the far left, who absolutely hate what we do and uh, feel attacked and feel like, you know, we're coming at them. And to some extent, you know, comedians by nature, we like to, you know, provoke people as well. So it's called trigonometry for two reasons. One, it's a trigger warning. Yeah. The other one, it is a bit of an FU as well. Okay. So it's a combination of those two. Okay. But the reason that, that we what we do, we try to be sensible is, you know, initially, first of all, it's a reflection of who we are as individuals. We, we're, not, we're not trolls by nature, right? And that's never been our thing. But also the reason is that I don't think you get very far by just being provocative for the sake of being provocative. I think you get very far by being provocative in areas where you're helping to explore for other people and for yourself, what are some of the weaknesses and arguments that are being put forward? Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, what is the, the contradiction? You know, Bill Hicks had this uh, great routine about how the people who'd always be upset with his act were Christians. And he would always say to them, well, forgive me. Yeah. Right. He was exposing the hypocrisy in their own way of thinking. Right. Mm -hmm. Their religion preached forgiveness. And yet here they were being upset with a guy for, for telling some jokes. And I, th I think exposing that hypocrisy is always best, best done by being rational and sensible and not coming across as, 
you know, a Milo or Milo or someone like that who just deliberately provokes okay. people for the sake yeah, of it. Yeah. In yeah. broadly speaking, um, because we're, we're both mapping very, very similar territory. Um, so I'm mm. wondering, what are you um, like intuitively tired of? Or where do you think that the conversation is stuck or has, has been stilted? Have you found a place where a lot of people are repeating the same thing or not getting past a certain point? Is there... Something yeah, that... I think I think we all get stuck in talking points, don't we? I mean, yeah. like we, we we talked a lot of, to a lot of guests, particularly at the beginning, about the importance of freedom of speech. Yes, and now, like my views on the importance of freedom of speech haven't changed, but I don't feel enlightened by hearing yet another person tell me the same things that I've heard already. Yes, and I'm much more interested in conversations now that acknowledge the importance of freedom of speech would you know which is absolute in my view but there are technical things going on right now in the world that are the reason that these conversations have become even more complicated than they always were and i think that's where a lot of us are stuck because we don't really know the answers yet and we're seeing some of the of the dominoes being put into place, and a few of them are already falling. You know, the the, the suppression of the New York Post story yes. during the election about Hunter Biden, yeah. followed by the banning of Donald Trump from Twitter, followed by, followed by, followed by, and suddenly now we have this GameStop thing, right? And you go, well, are those two things connected? <laughs> are they? Well, are they? I don't know, but my sense is the biggest question of the last decade probably more has been a battle between elites and quote-unquote ordinary people okay right and that is something that big tech is challenging and is being challenged by at the same time in a very powerful way because what is gamestop these traders what is that an example of that's people power that's people realizing oh technology now allows us to get together and bankrupt a hedge fund yeah in a day yeah. right little nobodies get together and they do that uh cancel culture Right, the idea that you know four of us can write into a publisher and suddenly they're going to stop Abigail Schreier from publishing a book, yeah, yeah. right? That is people power in a way. Now, a lot of cu- cancel culture isn't directed against the elites; it's directed against ordinary people. But nonetheless, it's a technologically driven thing, right? If four people in the whole of America felt strongly about a publisher's book in the past they wouldn't even be able to turn up outside of publishers at the same time because they they wouldn't even have an echo chamber in which they could connect and organize that, right? Now, the power of technology allows them to organize in that way. Uh, Brexit, Trump, all of those things can be framed to some extent in that way. And so what I think you're seeing now, and what we're not really talking about yet because we don't have the language or or the concept yet, is in a world of big tech, this battle between a handful of very powerful people and everybody else, that will continue to play out in ways that we don't yet know. And to me, that is the biggest story that no one is really looking at properly. And so this old way of talking about free speech, why is it important and all of that, I feel like we need to start moving on from that and moving on to this conversation. Because while I am... You know, as critical as anybody of Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and the big tech owners and and, and billionaires, uh, you know, the the, the nerd T-shirt wearing billionaires, as I call them, very critical. On the other hand, you have to understand that these are basically kids who've woken up with probably the most powerful tools in the history (laughs) of human civilization. And they are probably shitting it. They don't. They don't know what to do. Yeah. And we don't know what to do. And no, there's anyone else. And that's really the conversation that I think we should be having a lot more. Okay. And um, how do you uh, see from from your interaction with the audience the, when you uh, hit on a nerve or when you've advanced the conversation or, or how is the audience informing you guys as you go along? And is that kind of mm. novel for you to have such a uh, uh, worldwide audience and then how do you manage that yeah you it's just difficult your own gut? I, well it's difficult because quite often you get uh you, the things that provoke the most negative response are usually doing something right right okay so when, when you talk about so for example give you an example uh the in the days after the, the uh what happened to the capital in the united states we had in quick succession brett weinstein and douglas murray both of whom 
while being obviously you know, aware of the double standards vis-a-vis BLM and Antifa in the preceding months, were also absolutely clear that what happened at the Capitol was a mistake and was completely wrong, as we were on the show. We thought it was a big mistake. Oh, yeah. Uh, right? Now, a section of our fan base who, who are balanced and sensible were very much enthused by that and hugely supportive. But you also have to appreciate that people who voted for Donald Trump, of whom we have a a chunk in our audience, of course we do, uh, they were very frustrated about things that had happened. And so there was all this crap about, oh, actually, this was BLM, you know, uh, plants in in that crowd and all all of that crap, right? Yeah. And, And so, you know, and we had to make it very clear that we don't believe that. Okay. And what happens then is you get a lot of negative feedback, right? Do you then take that as, as, as meaning that you've done something wrong? Not really, mm-hmm. right? I often think quite often when you've done something principled but difficult, that's when you're going to get the most negative pushback, which tells you you've done the right thing. But equally, sometimes people will be like, well, we don't think you've explored this issue enough and you, you're operating from ignorance. Watch this and, and we might go and look at it. And of course, the bigger the show gets, the more difficult it is to hear everybody. Um, oh yeah. But yeah, I, I, I think the truth is that you have to follow your, in, your own instincts more than anything and you have to trust yourself that the place you're coming from is a healthy place. And also you have to try and listen to people and, and find a, you, you can't take people's feedback literally, but you also can't ignore it. You know, when I used to, I used to do training uh, of, you know, for business and stuff like that, I'd, I'd always, when I did training sessions for people, I'd always seek negative feedback. I'd always say, here's an anonymous questionnaire, please fill it out and don't worry about all the good stuff. Just tell me what was wrong with it. To me, that's always interesting. So I do always take the negative feedback on board, but you can't take it literally at the same time. You have to separate, the, you know, the useful from the useless. Yeah, especially with the um, an event such as the capital uh, thing, uh, because whatever you say about it, it will hmm. uh, declare your position. There's a linguistic it. battle going on over, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, yeah. That, that, saw... that was my my reaction. It's like, okay, how is this going to be used as a storytelling technique, and how right. is this going to right direct conversation but when it's unfolding in real time and we're all connected via this weird twitter thing or or the the news thing um for me it uh when events like that happen i internalize a lot of the strife that i'm seeing there i i I just absorb all the anxiety i don't know why i do that so but it's this kind of weird walk Mm. for me to like kind of calm myself down do you guys do you do you have that kind of connection um of uh, dealing with anxiety because you kind of are aware that everything's unfolding and you have a say and you're, you're kind of in the thrall or do you, do you have a certain detached attitude toward how alive this mm. medium is and your role in it? It's interesting. You're asking me questions that are far more detailed than the way I think about this stuff. Like you're <laughs> delving into my psychology and I'm just like, uh, look, I, I, look, they're oh, yeah. great questions. Honestly, great questions. The way I feel about it is, it's very helpful that there's three of us, Francis and our producer, Anton. Yeah, okay. And so whenever anything happens, you're not stuck in your own head. And we, we can talk about stuff and see how we feel as a team about what's going on and, you mm-hmm. know, what is our quote-unquote position on a certain issue. And sometimes our positions are different and, and you know, we'll talk about it. But most of the time, you know, uh, Francis is an old-school lefty. Uh, or left wing on economics, sort of more probably right conservative on cultural issues, I would imagine. Uh, and I'm just kind of very much in the center, which means I have strong opinions that are right leaning and strong opinions that are left leaning held at the same time. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we, we tend to find ourselves mostly on the same page about this stuff. But, you know, we're in the fortunate position that we don't feel beholden to anyone, really. Uh, including our audience you know every decision we make will piss off people in our audience who we love and make really happy other people in our audience who we love equally right and every decision every guest we book every everything we do will be like that right Uh, and so at some point you just have to go we're just going to talk to people we find interesting and the audience that likes that and respects that will be there eventually. And if, if that means that we lose a chunk of that audience now, it will be worth it in the end. Yeah. So, 
That's how we've always done it. You said uh, you mentioned something about being principled, and when you uh, make a principled decision, you know you'll have certain amounts of feedback. And uh, just taking the idea of principles, and then going back to the idea of this whole thing happening, are are you forming um, some sort of understanding of of like uh, of the cultural moment as some sort of uh, process of principles or a clash of of belief systems, or what do you? Mm. What are you seeing? Yeah. kind of the values that are that are operating and working themselves out through all this uh, crazy. It's it's interesting that you've asked me that because I'm writing my my first book at the moment, oh. and really, um, you know, the, the book is called "An Immigrant's Love Letter to Britain." It might as well be called "An Immigrant's Love Letter to Western Civilization." I see this fundamentally as uh, a, a battle between two sets of belief systems, two belief systems, um, and. Uh, the belief system that has got Western civilization to where we are now is now being challenged quite powerfully, undeniably powerfully, by an alternative vision of, of reality, uh, which you know even better than I do. Uh, the critical race theory, the, uh, the, the everything is relative, nothing is true, uh, yeah. you know, gender is a spe- all of that. Yeah. Uh, and so what I see it fundamentally as... Uh, a, an old civilization uh, that is got to a point where it's almost tired of its own success now. And uh, we are seeing a generation of young people come up who take all of that, all of that, all of those fruits of Western civilization for granted yeah. because they've never experienced anything else. And I, as someone who was born in the Soviet Union, whose grandparents were, you know, my grandma was born in a gulag for political prisoners, I have a slightly different view on these things. Okay. Right? Because what I understand instinctively, not theoretically by reading a book, but instinctively, is that you cannot retain all the great things about Western civilization if you take away the founding principles of Western civilization. Rationality, the scientific method, freedom of expression, and individualism over group tribalism. Okay. Right? Yeah. If you take those things away, the house will fall. And so what I see what's happening now as is a battle between people who want to say, let's preserve the house, let's... Look, the house isn't perfect. Right? Maybe we need to, to, to do a major renovation. Right? Maybe some things aren't working about this house, but let's not pull the foundation down. And people who say the house is so broken, so evil, so racist, so sexist, so homophobic, so transphobic, that we need to pull it down and build a new house. And the problem I have with these people is they have no idea what it's like building a house or what happens when you tear one down. I've seen it. When I was in, in, in the Soviet Union, which became Russia in 1991, I saw tanks on my streets in Moscow, right? I saw that the day before you could be a wealthy citizen with savings in the bank and you woke up tomorrow uh, as a professor of philosophy or, or physics or whatever, wealthy, respected yesterday and, this, and today you were selling your belongings on the street. Mm-hmm. Right, because you had no job, you had no savings. It was wiped out overnight. Yeah. And so, to me, this idea of you know tearing everything down and replace it with a utopia, I know that doesn't work. My country in Russia has had a long and distinguished history of proving that that doesn't work. Right, and so that's how I see what's going on. It's a battle between those two groups of people, and that's why. Fundamentally, uh, I don't believe in allowing those people to go unchallenged okay. and allowing their vision to be uh, presented as the morally correct one. I don't think it's moral. Okay. Uh, it, it may come from a moral place, but the consequences of it will be very dark and very moral indeed. It seems like there's uh, three groups that you've outlined then or, or brought up. There's the, uh, there's the elite and everybody else. Um, and then there's, uh, within that everybody else, and I guess the elite are probably more on one side or the other, are these two other kind of value systems. Uh, preserve and renovate the house. Uh, mm. Demolish the house with a better house uh, overnight. Uh, have you seen over the course of the last few years of, of investigating this, uh, ways of having those two groups of the renovators and the, I uh, guess, the dismantlers or the reinventors, uh, have you seen a way for them to communicate? Have you seen a way to reach 
uh, to that other side mm-hmm. or techniques that, that are useful and, and kind of uh, having them realize that maybe mm-hmm. these ideas aren't the best? Because it seems like there's a lot of fundamentalism in there. Yeah. A lot of certainty. Yeah, well, th- there will always be a, a chunk of people on both sides that cannot be reached by the other side. Yeah. Uh, there are, I would say, unique individuals that can reach across those lines. Uh, Aisha Canby, who we interviewed some time ago, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yeah. Uh, you know, she's someone who, who is able to speak to both, both sides. Um, there are a few people who are able to communicate uh, with both of them. Uh, whether communication between those two sides is the way this gets won is a different question okay. entirely. I am not so sure that that is the method by which this needs to happen. Okay. Uh, I see it much more as a battle over institutions. It's a power struggle, um, okay. in my opinion. Yeah. So if you've had a set of institutions that are infiltrated, or infiltrated sounds conspiratorial, so let's use a different word, that are predominantly populated by people with the tear-it-down mindset, Uh, then the job of people like us is to empower others, in my view. This is my view, of course. I'm not saying other people have to look at it that way. But in my view, it's the job of people like us to empower others who want to realign those institutions in a healthy direction and say to them, look, there's actually a very big group of people who are silently against tearing down the house, right? They're a little bit scared to speak up, Mm -hmm. but here's a few of the people... Who, who, who represent them, and here is a big show that has an audience that's large, which tells you there's an audience for that. And we are now in the UK seeing, hopefully, some of that pushback starting to happen. So the, the, the current government is talking about banning critical race theory in schools. They're talking about, quote-unquote, winning the culture war. They're talking about, uh, you know, repealing hate speech legislation. They're talking about all of that stuff. So that battle is is happening in government. We have the Free Speech Union, an organization that helps people who come under attack from mobs for saying the wrong thing or whatever to get their job back if they haven't done anything wrong, etc., etc. You're seeing Helen Pluckrose's counterweight institution doing something similar but trying to prevent that from happening. So those institutional battles are happening. I know for a fact that, you know, several prominent politicians in the United Kingdom and media people and journalists and publishers and whoever watch trigonometry and listen to the people on our show. So when we get people on the show, we're aware that we are changing minds of people who have the potential to influence this conversation within institutions. And I think that's how this happens, really. You know, um, The idea that you need to get someone from a college campus with pink hair to talk to, you know, to, talk to someone who's really outspoken on this culture stuff, and that's the way this okay. happens, not so sure about that anymore, if I'm honest with you. Okay. Were you ever in the Tear It Down camp in your uh, wild youth? Did you uh, ever, were you ever tempted by um, a uh, kind of that worldview? I think that I was certainly closer to that worldview when I was younger than I am now. Uh, but I never believed that what we need to do is tear down the current system and replace it with, with utopia. Uh, I certainly felt a lot more uh, idealistic about uh, politics and, and the possibilities uh, of things. Uh, the thing that, that I think for my generation, certainly in this country, I don't know whether that would have been the case in Canada or America, but uh, for us, I think it was the war in Iraq that completely shattered any illusion that we had about the power of ordinary people to influence policy making through the democratic system. Uh, because we had millions of people in the streets of Britain for a war that was quite obviously unreasonable. (laughs) That's the mildest way to put it, right? There was no sensible rationale for prosecuting that war as far as we understood it. Mm. And millions of people were out in the streets, myself included, and nothing happened. And millions of people, a million Iraqis died and tens of thousands of soldiers from various countries died fighting that war for for reasons that none of us really still understand, I think. Mm. Um, we, We can have theories about it, but we don't know why that war happened. And I think that was very shattering to a lot of young people's conception of 
well, you know, if we express a viewpoint loudly enough, that will filter through into the democratic system. So that ruined it. And then, you know, we can go through the list of other things that have happened since 2003 that have further undermined people's belief in, in, in just, you know, I'll go to the voting booth, I'll vote. And uh, that's my that, that's the way you do things, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was uh, the Iraq War, and then the re-election of uh, uh, George W. Uh, Bush. Uh, specifically, that that when he got re-elected, I'm like, I'm out, I'm done. Politics is not worth mm-hmm. my investment. I have no say in anything whatsoever. And it wasn't until it was uh, politics or the some form of political activity was bashed into my face repeatedly for four years at, at the college that I went to and then kind of went mm. into a, a, another level of expression that I'm mm. like, well, what is this politic thing? And now, after investigating it, I'm like, actually, I really need to do think through the basic founding principles of what it is to be a political agent in the world because I, I see us all, we're all now political, but I don't know if we're doing it necessarily efficiently or why we're doing it or we just uh you know participating in uh, in battle for the sake of battle um what mm. w- what was your response to uh that kind of uh, that the smashing of the idealism did you kind of regress from politics or did you were you still uh keep in touch with that and how did that lead I think to I w- trigonometry yeah so i think i definitely became less interested in politics and if I was interested, it was more the sort of uh, party political punch and Judy, who's up, who's down, what's okay. a funny thing that a politician said, like that. Uh, but I think that with Brexit in 2016 and then Trump, what I realized, I voted Remain in a referendum. Uh, so that would be like voting for Hillary Clinton, sort of in that equivalent, in, in the equivalence of those two battles. And I found myself almost overnight being confronted by this idea that I was being told by everyone around me that the reason that Brexit had happened, and I had no idea why Brexit happened, and I was quite frustrated and kind of confused by it. Suddenly, people were telling me that half of Britain, 52% of British people, are these evil, bigoted racists who could only have possibly voted for Brexit because they were evil and racist. And that's when the shift happened in my mind, because I've, you know, I'm a dark-skinned immigrant, first generation, uh, who, who came to this country when I was 11, lived here ever since. Sure, I've experienced racism occasionally, but fundamentally, this is one of the most open, welcoming, tolerant, liberal, in the good sense of that word, countries in the, in the history of humanity. Not just now in the world, but in the entire history of the world. So for you to tell me that half of the people of this country are racist bigots, to me, that was like, well, that's a blatant lie. So let's find out what's actually going on here. And then when Trump happened a few months later, I was like, okay, this isn't an accident. There's something going on here, right? I've been to America. Uh, sure, America has its issues with racism like most countries, but it's not comparable to Russia or China or you know, India or Indonesia or, or any Japan, you know, any country in the world. South Korea, whichever country, France, Germany, whatever country you pick in the world, you know, Britain, America, Canada, these are some of the beacons of enlightenment and race tolerance and understanding and mutual appreciation and genuine examples of integration. Mm. It doesn't happen in the same way in China or Japan or Russia or these other places. So for you to tell me that people elected Donald Trump because they were white supremacists and and they voted for Brexit because they're racist, that was like, that's BS, man. Mm. It's just BS. So let's find out what's actually going on. And let's find out why comedy is now infiltrated with all of this stuff, you know? And why is it, you know, like I remember spending 2016 standing in a green room, listening to other comics on stage, talking about how, well, yeah, it's old people that voted for Brexit, we should let them die, or they shouldn't be allowed to vote, to this sort of clapter from the audience where the joke wasn't really that funny, but people agreed with that mm. sentiment. And mm-hmm. I was going, well, you keep telling me that in comedy the most important thing is to punch up at those in power. Why is Doris from some small derelict seaside town 
in Northern England. Why is this eight-year-old who voted for Brexit, how is she this symbol of power that you're punching up at? Mm-hmm. You know, this pensioner whose who's partner passed away 10 years ago living on the breadline. Why is that? How are you saying this person should die or never be allowed to vote? And you are seeing that as punching up at the establishment. How, that doesn't make any sense, right? You have to have some kind of warped political thing going on to think that that's funny. And that's, I think, a lot of the, the genesis of trigonometry. Okay. Did you um, feel, uh, what was the thought process of, of uh, was there the question of betraying your clan by, by starting to examining these things? And was there a social cost for uh, breaking yeah. from the pack? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would say I'm probably, it's fair to say that I'm not friends with 99% <laughs> of the people that I was friends with oh. at the time. Okay. Uh, the, the, but the benefit is I never liked most of them in the first place. So I, I never really felt like... Uh, the comedy world, the way it was then, was my home. Okay. I feel much more at home in the sort of intellectual, cultural, dark web conversation. Okay. Uh, because that's, that's always been more interesting to me anyway. My comedy was always quite sort of cultural and political in its nature. I was never the sort of, hey, what about airplane food kind of guys yeah, that yeah. never appealed to me. So I always felt like a bit of a pariah in comedy anyway. Um, and initially, the cost was high because you're losing a lot and you're not gaining anything in exchange. But I always believed that what we had here at Trigonometry was very special, that it was always going to be a significant player in this conversation. And as long as we persevered and we went through, you know, it took us, I think, three months to get to 100 subscribers on YouTube and then you know, another three months to get to a thousand. And then, you know, you spend a year on like 10,000 and you, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. It's very, very difficult. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had each other to, to pull, to pull ourselves through that. And of course, you know, our producer who's, who's, who's part of the team and part of the business now, he, we didn't have him from the beginning in the course of, of doing what we do, we, we lost 99% of our friends. We lost almost every comedy opportunity that otherwise would have been available to us. Uh, we got kicked out of two studios. Uh, we broke up with two producers who, who decided they don't want to be associated with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most <laughs> recently we, we got kicked out of, if you remember, when we used to have conversations, it was just black curtains. We didn't have this sort of more fancy studio that we have now. That was, we recorded... Uh, interviews above a, in a room above a comedy club who were very generous letting us use their space but when it came to last spring and BLM and we had a few guests in a row you know black people by the way who criticized the movement and said that the roots of it are very you know they're neo-marxist and there's a lot of crap going on under the surface of this supposedly virtuous movement that was it. Uh, we basically, they, they orchestrated an excuse to kick us out of there uh, and we had to find a, a new studio literally overnight. Okay. So the cost has been high. Yeah. Uh, but I also, I've always believed that fundamentally, whenever you do anything important, that will always come at a price. Okay. And if you stand up and you stick your neck out and you stick your head above the parapet, the way I always think about it, the first man through, through the breach always takes the most the big heroes, hit, yeah. right? Okay. Yeah. Exactly. And so I, I've always been willing to do that. It, you know, I've always believed that fundamentally I do have something to contribute and that may just be creating a space for other people to speak their mind with a few useful questions on the way. Uh, and I've always thought that, you know, fundamentally, if we come back to our conversation about Western civilization, I came to this country and my parents sacrificed their life savings to send me to be educated in the West and to live in the enormous prosperity and comfort and safety and predictability and stability and wealth that we have here. I'm not going to sit quietly in a corner while a bunch of 18-year-olds with pink hair tear down the the founding principles of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. I won't do it. And if that means that 23 open mic comedians now hate me, I couldn't give a shit. You know, I could not care about that any less. Because 
this is important. These conversations are important. This cultural battle, it's, yes, it's entertaining, and yes, you can make jokes about it, and we do, and yes, these conversations, you know, you can watch them while having dinner, and that's great. But I believe fundamentally that the conversations about this issue are what will determine the future of our civilization and as a result the world, and so they're important, you know. Have has there been a shift in you since you started on this particular journey um, in your your principles? Uh, have, has there been a shift in in your beliefs or your principles, or a shift in your relationship to them, or, or like some sort of discovery that you made uh, about what what animates you and what you stand on? Yeah, I think I, I believe it or not. Strangely enough, the culture war has mellowed me out, hmm. uh, which which is unusual. Uh, but it has done that because as your audience grows, you become aware of the responsibility that comes with that. And so while events keep getting more and more ridiculous, like, the, you know, there was an article in The Guardian here literally yesterday about how BLM has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. And you go, well, I don't know what to do with that as a satirist anymore. I, I don't know how to make fun of that. It's... It, it, you know, these people burned down American cities for eight months and you're now nominating for the peace. I, I, I have no words, right? I, I have no words. Um, and the GameStop thing so, is all white supremacists now. That's what that's right. the story is. Right, I mean, it's absurd. It's absurd. It's absurd. So I don't, on the one hand, I don't know what to do with that. But on the other hand, I am aware that if I put something out on my Twitter and a lot of people read it, I've got 50,000 Twitter followers, which is not a lot, but uh, people might retweet that, and then some, some of the tweets I put out might get seen by a million people. And some of those people are then influenced by what I've said. So I do feel an element of responsibility to say the things I want to say in a way that is measured. Okay. Uh, and if you, if you make your words measured, that affects your thoughts, right? There's a reverse feedback loop there as well. If you speak in a certain way, that influences how you think. That's one of the things I've always found very powerful about the argument for the importance of free speech. And I think Jordan Peterson makes this argument very well, which is you cannot think without speaking, right? And there's the next step of that, which is you cannot, th the, the, the way you speak it then influences how you think. And it's, a, it's this constant feedback loop. So th having to be more measured in how I speak has made me more measured in how I think. And I think that has meant that I leap from extreme to extreme a lot less frequently than I might have done otherwise. Okay, okay. That's, uh, that's interesting. I've, I've also um, uh, kind of uh, developed a uh, calm demeanor because uh, it actually helps me uh, to process what I need to process because, like you say, I, I, can't, I don't know what I think until after I, I process it. But if I process it uh, in a way that I don't mind listening again and uh, not stressing myself out, then I actually uh, can... Uh, find grounding are you guys do you think you'll ever venture into uh like kind of sketch things or or the more dramatic um uh scripted uh kind of uh saturday night live style kind of things do you guys ever think about well that? it's interesting you should ask that because right now as i'm sitting here talking to you our producer is working on the second episode of a comedy it's very much like saturday night live thing, a thing we call uh, that was the woke that was uh, there was this uh, great show called that was the week that was a satirical show okay, yeah. uh, back in the day and we we do a show called that was the woke that was uh we did the first one to sum up 2020 and uh as francis keeps making fun of me now because when we did it i said to him well i want to do it monthly now but i'm not sure we're gonna have enough with january i said this literally <laughs> like on the first of january yeah. <laughs> we've had enough we've had plenty of stuff so uh in the next few days we'll be putting out the second episode of that was the work that was and that's very much basically because what happened was uh after uh joe biden was confirmed as president we were like, you know what, let's find out what all the late night shows are saying. Oh, okay. And we, we put it on on the big screen uh, in, in the studio. You know, we have a nice little cinematic setup. We put, got the popcorn out, got a few drinks, and we sat down and started watching it. And it was literally unwatchable. 
It was like watching a crocodile that's had all its teeth knocked out try and get a gazelle into his jaws. They, there's no bite in the jokes, you know? It's, there is no satire there. It's mostly like, oh, isn't it great that Joe Biden's elected? Okay, well, where's, you know, where's the humor? Okay. Uh, and so we are trying to do the opposite of that and go, look, we will very happily make fun of Donald Trump and the people who stormed the Capitol and all, you know, that twat with his, you know, Viking horns oh, okay, and all that yeah. crap. Okay. Right. But we'll equally make fun of Biden and Kamala Harris and all, and all of that and woke people. So we'll bring those two things together and try and punch up at both sides, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Because this is one of the, the ridiculous things in the comedy context. I made the point with pensioners and it being okay to make fun of old people and, and attack them through comedy. Well, why isn't it okay now? I mean, we've been told that, you know, comedy has to punch up a power. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are pretty, pretty damn powerful now, yeah, right? Yeah. Democrats control everything. Surely people need to start making fun of them. And you turn on and you see Stephen Colbert, who was a hero of mine, for the way he skewered George Bush yeah. at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Right? He destroyed him satirically. That was one of the bravest moments in, sat in the history of satire that I'm familiar with. It was beautiful. And he's now turned into the sycophantic, let's all clap along to the president kind of character. And it's disappointing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the people who, who come next the reaction against that, that will be the new wave of satire. And I'm very excited about that, and I'm keen to be involved in that. So absolutely, my vision for trigonometry is way beyond what we do at the moment. Um, you know, I think there will be a live component to it, doing live shows to our audience. And I'd love to team up with a, a sort of well-established or... Uh, you know, well-organized kind of sketch group or acting team or whatever, because we've got ideas for sketches for days, mm -hmm. comedically skewering some of the stuff that's happening. Ryan Long is very good at this, right? Uh, you, you know, just coming up with sketches for it. We've got ideas for days. The work that was uh, is something we'll be putting out every month, and we hope people start to tune into that and enjoy it. Uh, and the, the, there's so much opportunity now. And this is, again, coming back to what we started with, which is the power of big tech. It empowers people to go past the gatekeepers. Because 20, even 10 years ago, you really, if you wanted to make a career as a creative person comedically or, or in some writing or performing or whatever it was, there was four people in the country who controlled who got on TV or who got the writing gigs or whatever. Yeah. And you had to, you either, they either liked you or they didn't, mm. you know? And now that doesn't matter. If the audience likes you and if you have a way of finding a connection to that audience, the world's your oyster. Yeah. I think um, one of the driving factors that will uh, possibly uh, kind of just spiral into a, uh, a, a new era for us or a new discussion or just a new landscape of discussion is the amount of opportunity that is now right before people's feet because of what you say, the, the, uh, the institutional narrative uh, that started snarkily in the Daily Show days and the Colbert Report days. Uh, they, mm. they, some, at some point, they went and they, they became the powerful. And so they yeah. lost their teeth, as you say. And that has led, and, and like you were describing with uh, comedy, uh, your, uh, before you stepped away from that, the comedy was in this rigid, fundamental mindset. And they, it, it's almost like they put all their eggs in one basket and lost their ability to actually be flexible. And I don't know if comedy is necessarily entirely about punching up or down, but it is about the ability to, to look at things in a completely different way. And, and if you're in a belief system, you can't, you literally can't, move out of it. So I think the uh, highlighting the amount of opportunity um, that, that's available for people to be creative and uh, kind of setting up people for some sort of cultural renaissance or uh, not a backlash in a uh, violent sense, but a backlash culturally um, against uh, mm. the rigidity uh, that's embedded in, in forms of wokeness will actually uh, kind of draw audience and then draw great creators out in the open. I think so. And I think, you know, as, as we, we were talking about Bill Hicks, George Carlin and others, they were pushing back against the wokeness of their day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what they were doing. Uh, and uh, it wasn't easy for them. This is the other thing I always think about. You know, we were talking about the cost of doing trigonometry. 
Look, think about any person that you really fundamentally respect and think is a great person throughout history. How many of those people had an easy life? How many of those people were universally loved and respected in their own time? Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, MLK, Gandhi, whoever it is for you, right? Those people were welcomed with open arms. Those people had to struggle. I'm not saying I'm Gandhi or MLK, by the way. I'm just saying, <laughs> you, you know, if you look up to people, if you think about who they were or the great comedians or the great musicians, whoever, they all had to fight really, really hard uh, and fight a lot of people who hated them. Yeah. Uh, but they did what they thought was right, and that's why, uh, that's why we remember their names. Yeah. One, one more question. I, I'm sure you, you have to go. Um, I was thinking about you, uh, your, your, uh, your immigrant, uh, kind of the, that part of your story. What is something that, uh, how does that inform your humor? How does your, like, your Russian roots inform your humor and, and uh, keep you uh, outside of the British or, or give you a different view of that? Do you, do you have any awareness of that? Is there like a kind of a cultural uh, perspective that, that you bring, uh, just like in the way that you think, not necessarily the, the outer stuff, but just how mm. Russians are? Yeah. Well, I think when you're different, you come from a different culture, you can appreciate what people themselves don't appreciate. Uh, and that, that, that applies to, to everything from comedy to just fundamental facts, like it's good to live in a place that's safe and, and wealthy and consistent, right? Uh, but, you know, in Britain in particular, pe- people here are very self-deprecating. Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, whereas in Russia, people really aren't, you know. Um, so th- those that's something that I've, I often played with uh, as a comedian, uh, that sort of thing. And, and actually, that was the thing that, frankly, quite amazed me always. Like, I would go around the country performing to audiences who wanted nothing more than for me to make fun of their culture. Gently, but to make fun of it. A a British comedian who went to Russia and tried to make fun of Russians, (laughs) that that would end very differently. (laughs) Right? Uh, So I I always played with that and, you know, various other things, British people and foreign languages and whatever else it might be. so yeah, being an immigrant does give you a different perspective on things, for sure. It uh, that makes me think that uh, what we're talking about, kind of like the the stilted uh, state of comedy now. It, it's the it's almost like the, that which we call woke doesn't like being made fun of, and so uh, you can't mm. really be a comedian that doesn't like to be made fun of. Uh, it, it, it seems like so. Uh, in a way, taking the idea of uh, being resilient is kind of inviting. If you lean into being made fun of, uh, that kind of gives you a strength, at least in uh, or access to humor, in a way. Mm. Yeah, it, it does. It does. Uh, and this is this is the odd thing about uh, even what comedians they don't really have much of a sense of humor. A lot of them, they take they they literally have bought into this idea that words are very important and they, okay. they, they may be violence and you have to take that seriously and so they they are not resilient because the whole structure of wokeness teaches you to be fragile it's the whole mechanism of it is designed to create yeah. that experience yeah. in you yeah. and so if a comedian is woke they can't have that that strength of character to make fun of themselves uh, in the same way. What do you think is uh, operating so, if, if somebody wants to be a comedian but doesn't have a sense of humor what, what, what do they think no, they can be very funny. They okay. can write funny jokes. They just won't be able to laugh at themselves. Okay, okay. Uh, and that is the great comedy often is someone seeing very deeply into themselves and seeing the humorousness of that. Yeah. A lot of these work people take themselves very seriously and they take the ideas very seriously. Okay. I can appreciate a joke about someone with my political views. I, we get people making fun of trigonometry all the time. And I find it funny because I can connect to that way of seeing the world. And I go, well, if I think from that point of view, that's a really well-written joke and it's funny. Yeah. Uh, but they can't do the same when the joke is made about them and okay. their worldview yeah. because they take their worldview very seriously. I did see somebody with 20 followers award you guys the bigot- Bigots of the Year uh, award. He made a little poster yeah. for you. I don't know if you saw yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was very nice. <laughs> Actually, some, the reason that happened is someone said to us on Twitter... Uh, that one of our interviews, I think it was with Abigail Schreier, should be given some kind of award, and they meant that genuinely. And we sarcastically 
retweeted that saying, okay. "Oh, we look we look forward to being given the bigger of the year award." And then this idiot, who who genuinely hates us, uh, made this poster. So of course we retweeted it. This is what these people don't understand: is the only power that they have to cancel you is if you take them seriously, and if you're vulnerable to them. We're not vulnerable to them, and so we make fun of them, and we enjoy it. And it's to us, it's just grist to the mill of entertaining our fans because okay. our fi- fans know we're not bigoted. Yeah. So when we show our fans how these idiots react, to them it's funny, okay. you know. And to us, it's funny. I find it funny now when people try and make me like, you know, the idea that somebody would call a first-generation Russian Jewish immigrant a Nazi is hilarious. I think that's hilarious to me, yeah. right? Uh, you know, the only the, I, I always talk about me being the best-known Jewish Nazi comedian in the world. It's a great niche, right? So, so to me, that's just amusing. Yeah. I don't take these people seriously, and when okay. you don't take their words seriously, they have no power. Yeah. Okay. I think this uh, conversation is rife with uh, good advice for people, but I, I'd like uh, just to ask you, uh, kind of as a parting shot, what advice do you have for people who are worried or anxious about the state of uh, the world right now, specifically in, in Britain and in uh, America and the way that we're heading uh, in the Anglosphere, so-called? What, what do you think that would be good for people to hear or practice? Do what you think is the right thing to do. Do what you know is rather is the right. Do what you know is the right thing to do, and do it now. Don't wait. Don't wait six months. Don't wait a year. This isn't going to get better. It's not going to get better until more and more people start to speak out against it. It's only going to get worse. And waiting is understandable because you don't want to be that first person through the breach or the tenth man through the breach. You want to wait. I get that. You don't want to lose your job. You don't want to get cancelled. You don't want this. You don't want that. But. The truth is the costs of this are far worse down the line because right now what's at stake is this particular job at this work company. Ten years from now, it's your child at school being taught that different races have different value, Mm -hmm. being taught that boys and girls are, you know, whatever, being encouraged to think in these deeply divisive racist ways. And once your child has been trained into that, I think that's going to be a lot worse than having to find a new job or having to do deal with people being nasty to you on Twitter, whatever it is. Uh, the costs of this down the line are tremendous and very, very, very bad. And if you don't speak up about it now, you know, the, some of the repercussions of what is being done in the name of wokeness down the line, if you, if you play the movie forward, I always say to people, connect the dots and play the movie forward. Where does this lead? Where does, what happens in a society that is obsessed with race and is obsessed with putting everybody in their tribe? What do you think is going to happen to that? What do you think happens with that five, ten years from now if you teach black people that they're oppressed and teach white people that they're evil? What do you think is going to happen? You think white people are just going to sit there and go, yeah, you know what, maybe we are evil. Yeah, maybe we should be the, the second-class citizens for a change. You think that's going to happen? Or do you think people have a natural sense of fairness and resent very much being held responsible for crimes that they didn't commit? Mm -hmm. Do you think that might happen? Mm -hmm. Play the movie forward. Play the movie forward, and whatever you see, everybody's got their own movie. I'm not telling you what what is at the end of your movie. Well, play the movie forward and act accordingly. That's my advice. Mm -hmm. So be sensible, be responsible, but you probably listening to this, watching this, know exactly what the right thing for you to do is. And you probably, just like every single one of us, have been putting it off. Don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Courage and gratitude seems like uh, two uh, motivating forces in in just listening to you. Those two things uh, Mm. are operating in uh, full. Yeah, absolutely. I think courage is very, very important. And uh, we're all afraid. You, me, everybody. We're all afraid of whatever things will be thrown at us. We don't know what's going to happen. Who knows, you know, if we're going to stay on YouTube or big tech or whatever. Nobody knows. But uh, courage is always the answer, in my opinion. Uh, And gratitude, absolutely. I think we should be... This is the the one thing I want my book, hopefully, to make people aware of. We have so much to be grateful for. And throwing that in the bin just because we think things could be even better is not a good idea. Let's look at what we can change and improve, but let's start from a point of fundamental recognition of just how unbelievably, incredibly, 
uniquely fortunate we are to be living in the 21st century in the Western world in a way that every single person that has lived in this world before us would find incredible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's be grateful for that and let's start from that point. And if you want to change the world, I understand, but change it from that place first. And when is your uh, book expected to be? Uh talking about anxiety um, again. So the, <laughs> well, the proposal is uh, pretty much done, so okay. we'll see if, uh, who wants to pick it up. Okay. And I'm hoping that by the end of 2021, the book will be uh, published. And uh, I'd be very grateful if you'll have me back on when it's out. Absolutely, absolutely. And so you guys have uh, one main channel, or are you guys splitting off into different... You have a Clips channel and no, a Clips we, Plus channel? The Clips, like... the clips existed, <laughs> but, but we've got so much work going on, we've stopped putting stuff on there. Okay. So it's all uh, trigger po- at trigger pod on all the social media and trigonometry on youtube uh and as you, as you said we stream four nights a week and we've got okay. an interview on wednesday and sunday that always go out excellent excellent are you guys branching out into alt tech uh are you guys uh thinking about that at all any of these uh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're sort of like every there. time someone ge- someone gets taken down from a big, we're like, we need to find something else. But then we run out of time and, yeah. we, you know, of the, the day-to-day grind doesn't happen. So we're not quite there, but we will be. We are on Locals okay. and we're really loving Locals. If you're not on that, I really recommend it. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, it's really, really cool because it creates a community rather than just like, hey, I believe in what Benjamin Boyce is doing. Here's $5 a month. Yeah. It's more like, I believe in what Benjamin is doing, and I think that people who also believe that would be quite cool people to hang around with and share jokes and memes and comments with and, and interact with Benjamin. You know, he's got that sort of vibe. So I, uh, I'm not getting any commission for it. I would generally have yeah. found it very yeah. good. So that's the, the one you might call old tech that okay. we're, we're into now. Uh, what should we be on? Um, I, I, I've been pushing Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E. Uh, they automatically upload all my stuff from, from where I post it. And also BitChute is uh, a, yeah. a good alternative to um, and there is an audience out there. It'd be nice if people are aware, more and more people are aware that they don't have to go through uh, one gate, one gated community to get to mm. our content. But um, it's always, it's still in a very nascent uh, early phase, um, alt tech. And it's hard to, yeah, it is. it's hard to compete with uh, YouTube because uh, they have all the audience and uh, they've been very good to me and they've been uh, very good for you guys too. So I don't unappreciate yep. them, but. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, we, we'll have to see. Odyssey and Bitchy are both on our list to, to join uh, to the, the moment we get any respite from yeah. the nonstop yeah. uh, daily grind. Well, you guys are doing amazing work. Thanks for uh, giving me a bit of your time and uh, letting me poke around in your psyche uh, to the extent that you did. I really appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. We really loved having you on our show. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, if, you guys are really yeah, good what, uh, hosts and, and interviewers. Well, it's very kind of you to say. Uh, we've learned a lot, I think, over the last couple of years. Uh, but it was a great interview. It did very, very well. And if anyone watching this hasn't seen that, I'd really recommend they check you out on Trigonometry. Yeah. It was really, really fun. Well, all the links will be in the description. And I think you guys uh, you guys have a lot of things going on. So there will be a lot of things for people to check out. You guys do great interviews. And I'm glad that you're going in the direction of uh, scripted comedy or, or ishness, that there's a lot of stuff to, to play around with there. Yeah, there's a lot to play with, so I look for that was the work that was, uh, and uh, the next one, I don't know how quickly this will go out, but the next one will be going out in the the first week of uh, February. Okay, cool. Is there, uh, do you guys have like a cool announcer voice for that was the woke that was, or some sort of like... Uh, soap opera introduction uh, music. Yeah, have yeah. a look, check it out, man. Okay. Uh, okay. I think you'd enjoy it. I'll link you it, might I'll enjoy link it, it above. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Constantine. Right. Have a have a good day, and uh, hope to keep in touch. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. And that's the end of the recording. Generic plug for this channel and to support it, which you can do so by finding links in the description. Have a good night.